The scripture today comes from Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, and the Passion Translation. Jesus continued, There once was a very rich man who had the finest things imaginable, living every day enjoying his life of opulent luxury. Outside the gate of his mansion was a poor beggar named Lazarus. He lay there every day, covered with boils, and the neighborhood dogs would come and lick his open sores. The only food he had to eat was the garbage that, that the rich man threw away. One day, Lazarus died, and the angels of God came and escorted his spirit into paradise. The day came that the rich man also died. In hell, he looked up from his torment and saw Abraham in the distance, and Lazarus was standing beside him in, the glor in glory. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and come to cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames of fire. But Abraham responded, My friend, don't you remember? While you were alive, you had all you desired. You surrounded yourself in luxury, while Lazarus had nothing. Now Lazarus dwells in the comforts of paradise, and you are in agony. Besides, between us is a huge chasm that cannot be bridged, nor can anyone cross from one realm to the other, even if he wanted. The rich man continued, Then let me ask you, Father Abraham, please send Lazarus to my relatives. Tell them to witness to my five brothers and warn them not to end up where I am in this moment, place of torment. Abraham replied, They've already had plenty of warning. They have the teachings of Moses and the revelation of the prophets. Let them hear them. What if they're not listening, the rich man added. If someone from the dead were to go and warn them, they would surely repent. Abraham said to him, If they wouldn't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither would they be convinced if someone were raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to continue our series on deconstruction. And we're going to look at the the idea, the theological construct, the doctrine, whatever we want to call it, of hell. Uh, like Mandy said last week as she spoke about sin, like this is like a light topic, right? Like whether we believe in hell or not, right? I told you the story about my friend Andy who um, when I came, we came up here to interview Amago for the first time and we met with the leadership team and the search team and uh, we were having dinner that night at time and Vicky had referenced God as she in that conversation. I'd never thought anything else about it. I kept right on going. We get back to the hotel, and I'm like, oh, it was awful. I was awful. They're never, oh, I, we just go home back to Alabama. We're done. And she said, you did fine, but why did she say God is a she? I said, that's what's bothering you? So we had a conversation about that. And then at some point on the way home, something came up about hell or something. And I kind of went like, oh, well, and she went, oh, don't tell me you don't believe in that now either. We both grew up very uh, more traditional and conservative and more in the fundamentalist bent. I didn't have a good answer for her then, but I knew that I had questions about it. So this very famous scripture about the rich man and Lazarus, any comments uh, anything you noted in this scripture today that you would like to share with us? So we've learned the past two, two or three weeks in deconstruction that it can be hard work. And like Mandy said last week, I, I just want to reiterate that. If you haven't listened to Mandy's sermon last week, please go back to YouTube and listen to that. And if you haven't heard Vicki's opening on the spiritual formation uh, that we that we go through as we grow. Please go back and listen to that. It's foundational to it. I mean, it's just wonderful. Um, 
But Mandy had said last week that for some of us, deconstruction, deconstruction is just maybe undoing one or two ideas. There's just one apple, two apples in the apple cart that need to be sorted through. Some of us, like me, had a whole cart full of apples, and they all had to be dumped out and wrestled with, but that's just me. Um, on the other side of that, I, I like what Renee had said to me before, that um, there are some things that we just decide to keep. There are some apples that we examine it, we study it, we look at it, we think about it, we wrestle with it, and we go, you know what? This is intact for me. It's going back in the cart. And that is completely okay. We've said it over and over and over here at Imago Day that we do believe in generous orthodoxy. It is so okay if you don't see this like I do, or like Mandy does, or Vicki does, or Renee does, or anybody. You can see this differently, and we are okay. So this deconstruction, though, especially when you come from a more fundamentalist environment like I did for so many years, it can be hard to weed out that stuff that has just taken root into our system, into our soul. And I'm going to tell you a story about that a little bit later on, but I want you to be thinking about that. And, and here's the thing, too, about hell. There are so many tangents that are crucial to this subject that we could talk about. We just don't have time today. What Resurrection. <laughs> what will our bodies be like after we die at resurrection? Will it be the one that I had before all the children and poor, poor food choices? Or will it be something else entirely? What will we do in heaven? If our loved ones are in hell, if there is a thing, will we know? How will we possibly enjoy heaven if they are? And on and on and on. And we just can't get into those today. But what I will say about this, anyone that's interested in doing a small group with me on this topic, I'm game. Let's do it together. See me after church. Send me an email. We can, we can have a small group around this topic if you're interested. But I wanted to kind of narrow it down to this passage about the rich man and Lazarus. But before I can even get to that, there are two things that I need to talk about with you. And, and before we can even get there, we have to ask a couple of questions before we get to Luke 19, or 16, I'm sorry. Number one, is God wrathful toward us? Is there such a thing as God's wrath? And number two, what did the ancient Israelites believe about hell? Now, the wrath of God might not sound important in this subject, but to me it's the foundation. How we view God, see God, experience God, have been taught about God. It forms our theology, and it is the foundation, how we perceive God. My grandfather was a fire and brimstone preacher, 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 preacher. But there are things that the homilies and hymns won't teach you, teach you, teach you, teach you. No Hamilton fans, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> I'm kidding, that's all I'm going to say about that because I'll get into copyright issues and then JJ back there start throwing apples at my head telling me to shut up. That's all I'm going to do, I'm done. I'm done, JJ. So, the grandfather of Aaron Burr, our third vice president, uh, was the famous preacher Jonathan Edwards. Edwards was famous. Jonathan Edwards was famous. He still is. He was a revivalist who preached a hellfire and brimstone sermon. He called it sinners in the hands of an angry God. 
He was the OG on hellfire and brimstone in America. My kids would kill me if they just heard me use that term. Y'all don't tell them I said it. They would say I'm not cool enough to use that phrase. Obviously, his theological construct of hell, Edwards, took root somewhere in our idea of God. This is what he said in his sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect, over the fire abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Yeah, ouch. Edwards also said this, The apostle tells us God is love, and therefore seeing that he is an infinite being, it follows that he is an infinite fountain of love. Seeing he is an all-sufficient being, it follows that he is a full and overflowing and inexhaustible fountain of love, and in that he is an unchangeable and eternal being, an eternal fountain of love. So which one is God? Sounds like Jonathan Edwards was confused. I get confused too. Don't you? The Israelites had trouble with that one too. The Israelites believed in a wrathful God. Sometimes. Except when they didn't. Some people, some ancient Israelites, never bought into the idea of God as wrathful. There is no consistent story in the Hebrew Scriptures about how God is mad at His human creation. It speaks of wrath, but it also speaks of endless love. Nehemiah... You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them, meaning his people. In Isaiah, but now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who, form, who, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Another writer in the book of Isaiah says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. In Ezekiel, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And then the prophet Jeremiah, O Ephraim, which is another name for Israel, my dear, dear son, every time I mention his name, my heart bursts with longing for him. Everything in me cries out for him, softly and tenderly. I wait for him. And as I said, we could go through a dozen more scriptures that talk about love of God and it never ends and it's inexhaustible. And we can talk about a dozen more that talk about the wrath of God. But I want to ask you a question this morning. Let me take a sip of water. Is God truly wrathful toward his people? 
Or is that how God's people perceived him? You know, the Israelites were not in a vacuum. They were inhabited around them were other tribes and nations that worshipped all kinds of gods, many gods, all the gods, a god of harvest, a god of winter, a god of childbirth, all the things. And their gods did get angry. Their gods did get mad. Whenever there was a famine or a drought or illness or disease or sickness or wandering or hurt or pain, their god was mad at them. Their God was punishing them. It was a way for the nations, the peoples, to explain the world around them. This is why this is happening. We do the same, right? We want to know why is this happening. They did too. And so, in my estimation, it makes sense that the Israelites thought well, maybe this is how our God, our God works as well. Maybe our God does that too. It's called retributive justice. You do good and good things come to you. But you do bad and bad things are headed your way. We deserve it. It's our rightful punishment. Or we don't deserve it. We've done things the right way. I've heard so many people in my lifetime in so much pain and agony over horrible diagnosis and losing someone, and I've probably said these things too, of, I didn't deserve that. I don't deserve this. And it's because we have internalized this thought, this retributive justice. The Israelites were no different. This might be how their God works too. So some of the writers in the Old Testament perceive God as angry, wrathful, and that's where we get today the idea of God being mad at us. We have offended God just by birth, being born. We have offended God. We are born with a stain of original sin. But not all the Old Testament writers saw God this way. Just ask Jeremiah. Just ask Nehemiah. Ask the writers of Isaiah. Ask Job. Ask Job. Ask Koheleth, the writer of Ecclesiastes, who said, Time and chance happen to us all. I told you at the beginning that I would describe to you a, a situation where this came back uh, to me, and um, I'll share that now. I, um, when I divorced my husband in 2016, I knew it was the right thing to do. I felt peace about it. it was, that's what had to happen. And about a year or so afterwards, I was driving to my job in Huntsville, and I'd had a bad week. You know, one of those weeks where your tires go flat, somebody's got a cold, Somebody's got an unexpected doctor bill. It's like, you know, I need a break, God, please. It's one of those weeks, right? And I'm driving to work, and I'm praying, and I think out of nowhere, oh, this must be God punishing me for divorcing my husband. And I immediately go, oh, I haven't thought that kind of thinking in a long time. Where did that come from? I literally pulled off the side of the road. I know where I was on Airport Road in Huntsville by the Starbucks. It's where a horrible, deadly tornado came through the city of Huntsville in the early 90s and killed a lot of people. I, the exact spot. Pull off onto the side of the road, and I began talking out loud. I know that's not true. That's not true. But those beliefs 
get buried down into our system so deeply, we may not even recognize that we're carrying them. I used to play that game all the time. I had internalized so deeply the idea of, re of retributive justice that anytime I did something wrong, I was in internally expecting the hammer to fall. Oh, God's gonna, he's coming for me now. Let me just say corporal childhood punishment does this belief no favors either. We won't get into that. But I would cringe. I would dread what's coming my way because I know I'm going to get it. Go into the woodshed. I'm going to get it. That dread. That dr I dreaded God for so many years because God did say that our sins will find us out. He's going to cause circumstances to come into my life to punish me. And I dreaded God. Anne Lamont, in a book, I think it might be her latest book, I'm not exactly sure, The Dusk, Dusk Night Dawn, she wrote a line that I have never been able to get out of my head, and I want to share a little bit of this story that she shares. She wrote, Dread was my governess growing up. She kept me alive. I didn't run out into the street. I didn't talk to strangers. I didn't sass. I minded my manners and teachers and stayed on my toes, toes and did well in school. She would have made an excellent character in the Old Testament. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Although as my parents were atheists, she would have had to tone down the blood atonement. It was into her arms that I retreated from the emotional landmines and overwhelm of the world and the dining table and from the secret, if occasional, experience that deep inside me was an infinite, untrammeled soul. She was my most reliable companion, always there for me, like God in a bad mood. Dread taught me how to succeed and why it mattered, how to survive the caffeinated neglect of my home life, the bullying on the blacktop, the equally fraught states of isolation and intimacy. She kept me in line helped me to be someone everyone else would like. She got me to where I am today. Dread was my governess. That's my story. I dreaded God. What should I have? Is God wrathful toward me? Was God wrathful with the ancient Israelites? Is God punishing me? Now, I'm going to share with you how I see it now and you don't have to agree, I believe that God gives me grace and mercy. Does he allow bad things to come into my life to get my attention, to wake me up, or maybe realize that I have some things that I need to make right? I think sometimes God can, especially if we're not heeding those nudges and whispers to do the things. Sometimes, sometimes. But I think there's another way to think of God that's not punitive. It's the opposite, restorative justice. Sometimes it's not God doing anything to get our attention. Most of the time, they're just natural consequences of the choices we've made. And we get to wrestle with that. And we have to deal with what needs to be dealt with. And it's called restorative justice. The purpose is restoration, not punishment. God wants us to be restored to one another, to make peace with one another. And yes, there are times that we cannot make peace with one another, and that's okay. We have to at least try. It's called restoration. We can approach God with boldness, not with fear, not with dread, 
but look at how we've hurt someone or ourselves. A hard look. We allow the Spirit of God to lead us, to nudge us, to guide us as we seek to make things right, either with ourselves or others. God might direct you to reflect on how you might could choose better next time. But God's not wrathful toward you. We should feel remorse. We should feel some conviction of, mm, I didn't quite get that one right. We should feel that when we do wrong. We should feel contrition when we hurt someone. We should feel a pang in our heart when our words have been harsher than necessary. And I posted on Facebook a couple of weeks ago about the whole, uh, I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings, baloney. That's baloney. We do not say, I'm sorry if I've hurt your feelings. No, that is not an apology. That ain't it. That's not contrition. It's just not. When someone is standing in front of you and they've said, you have hurt me. It's not our turn to say, well, you shouldn't be hurt, girl. We may not have meant anything by it. You're right. You're right. But the first thing that should fly out of our mouth is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Not if I hurt you. If I Obviously, they're hurt. Obviously. It's restoration. Let me just say on the converse of that, if the voices inside of you and the nudgings and the promptings and the whispers are saying to you, you'll never get it right, they won't forgive me. That's not God. If, if, if you're wrestling with this voice that says, I deserve this, I deserve what's coming to me, that's not God. God is on our side. God does not condemn us. God is not mad at you. God wants you and I to make things right with one another where we need to and with ourselves. But he is not standing over you in anger, ready to throw down a thunderbolt, a punishment unless you make it right. God stands with you in your ear saying, that's not right. You need to go make that right. Honey, you chose some wrong words. You need to backtrack. But there's no wrath. And we can let the dread of God go. There's a song that we sing. It's one of my favorite hymns. I would sing it every Sunday if we could. I absolutely love this song. You know it. You probably know what I'm about to say. It's the song in Christ alone. There is a line in there that says, Till on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. I sing that song from the full-hearted, from the top of my voice, from my lungs every time we sing it. The whole thing, but I can't sing that part. And you know what I've found to be at peace with that? It's just okay. It's not for me. It might be for you, and I can love you for that anyway. It's just not for me. God has loved you before the foundations of the earth were ever formed with an everlasting love that will not change. Second question. So what did the ancient Israelites believe about hell? Well, whatever they believed, they didn't talk a lot about it. It didn't merit a lot of discussion in the Hebrew Scriptures. As A.J. Levine wrote in her commentary, the Jewish tradition never developed doctrinal views of hell or hell of eternal damnation. Bart Ehrman says, Our oldest sources of the Hebrew Bible do not talk about life after death, but simply the state of death, as all people righteous and wicked, 
reside in their grave or in a, or in a mysterious entity called Sheol. For the ancient Israelites, there were no places of punishments and rewards after death. It was just the grave. It was nothingness. It was gone. And it was something to be avoided for as long as possible. Now, when we get closer to the time of Jesus, within about 200 years of Jesus, their views evolve a lot because of the culture they're surrounded with. And so their thinking changed a little bit, and they begin to think of the life after death a little bit differently. Ehrman says the idea was was that at the end of time, God would vindicate himself and his people. God was bringing justice. God would set everything to its rightful place. God's enemies, i.e. Israel's enemies, would be forever defeated and we would all live in this utopian society. God will resurrect all the righteous people who had passed on to live in this perfect world together. No pain, no hunger, no disease. The wicked would be resurrected too and be returned to their bodies to be tormented. They did believe that, but they don't say how and for how long. We just don't know. So this was the foundation that you and I get for how we probably were taught hell and heaven years ago or today. This is the foundation of it, is this Jewish belief and how they saw the end of t- how in their end of life. And so now we're ready to talk about the rich man and Lazarus. Y'all were waiting, right, with bated breath, going, dear God, can she hurry up and get to the point? I'm getting there, I promise. I want you to notice some things about this parable that I'd never noticed before. I was taught this parable completely different from the way I'm about to teach it to you today. It is a parable. This is not a literal story. It was never meant to be. I was taught it as a literal story. Maybe you were too. That this was the view that we get of what, we, what it will look like when we die. That this will be here, this will be here, there'll be this great chasm. That was never the intention of this parable. A parable is to teach something deeper, more meaningful. The message was far deeper than heaven and hell. But number two, I want you to notice who the audience is. The audience is not just the crowds. It's not just the people gathered around him. The audience are just the Pharisees. Just the Pharisees. Why? Because Jesus knew who they were pretending... Jesus knew they were not who they were pretending to be. Now, as an aside, I want to say this about the Pharisees. We give them a lot of hell. We give them a lot of crap. These are not bad people. These are good people. And we can uh, caricature them and, and, and demonize them. They're just people. That's not okay when we do that. But in that story, in the verses above that, we hear about a shrewd steward. And it's just to them. We get to the heart of what Jesus is trying to teach them. Luke says in just a few verses before, he says this to the Pharisees. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And what did, how did the Pharisees reply to hearing Jesus say that? The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and laughed at him. Never saw that before in my life. Did not know that was in the New Testament. Maybe I had and just blew right past it. Why did they laugh at that? Because they believed in retributive justice. That was the system they knew. 
The system they knew was God rewards good, God punishes bad. But they took it a little bit deeper. They took their, their financial status as a way to judge themselves whether or not they were in the favor of God. So the more money they had, the more favor they had from God. God was blessing them. God was blessing them. They had all this money. But if you were poor, if you were in poverty, you, you've done something wrong. God's punishing you. You have some sin you need to deal with or else you wouldn't be in poverty. Their money ideals were not so they could go on fancy vacations or buy $2,000 Air Jordans. It was because people would look at them and think, maybe if I get my life right and together like the Pharisees do, maybe God will bless me financially too. It was pride. It was pride. This parable of the rich man and Lazarus was for the ears of the Pharisees. Jesus is trying to teach them a better way to think about needy people, poverty, and money. So let's really look at this parable. Jesus said there was a very rich man who had the finest things imaginable, living every day, enjoying his life of opulent luxury. Outside the gate of his mansion was a poor beggar named Lazarus. He lay there every day, covered with boils, and the neighborhood dogs would come and lick his open sores. The only food he had to eat was the garbage that the rich man threw away. This is the only parable in all four Gospels where someone is given a name. All the other parables are the rich guy, the widow, the blank. This one, we get a name. The name is Lazarus. Is it the Lazarus that was raised from the dead? Probably not, but we don't know for sure. The parable is not saying that it's bad to be rich. It's not. It's not saying that. Jesus is saying that it's bad to believe you are rich because you are righteous. Jesus was saying that poverty is not a punishment for sin. Jesus saying, is saying that it's, a, it's, a, it's bad to have plenty to share and you don't. Lazarus was right outside his gate on his doorstep. A.J. Levine says his placement at the rich man's gate hints that friends placed him there either because they thought the rich man would be generous or because they were attempting to shame him into generosity. Their ploy fails. Also notice in this parable with me, the rich man knows who Abraham is. He knows who that is. Which implies that he probably was Jewish. The rich man was probably Jewish. Why did Jesus do that? My interpretation and my interpretation only is Jesus wanted to adjust their lens. Their lens was this. I'm rich because God likes me better than you. But when the rich man is this guy, it's like, oop, a change. Oh, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting that. He's inviting them to see themselves in the rich man. The rich man knows who Lazarus is. This most definitely implies that he knew Lazarus laid at his doorstep every day waiting for crumbs. Calls him by name. And then he asked the rich man to bring him water. He sees Lazarus as his errand boy, as his slave, as his servant. The rich man sees Lazarus, sees himself as Lazarus better, his superior, his to boss around. The rich man does not get it. 
the rich man still does not love. I want you to notice something else about this story. This story is not about Lazarus being righteous and the rich man being a sinner, even though it's been interpreted that way, especially in, in, in my situation. It's not about righteousness and sinner and who goes to hell and who goes to heaven. It's about wealth and poverty. It's about the haves and the haves-nots and what can we do about it while we are alive. Because obviously after we're gone, it's too late. The point is, what do we do with our lives now? Are we working toward bringing the kingdom of God on heaven now as it is on earth now as it is in heaven? Are we using our opportunities of privilege, our money, our capacities, our time to help those who are starving, lonely, dying, wounded, who are on our doorsteps? That is the point. As Brian Zod said in his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, in short, the rich man still has not learned to love. And in this loveless state, his soul finds nothing but torment. In the gospel, Jesus never lays down an afterlife, an afterlife theology that claims Christians go to heaven when they die. He never talks about a personal relationship with our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. He never gives us a Roman's road to salvation. He never gives us a sinner's prayer. He never said that we could miss heaven by 18 inches. How many grew up with that one? Miss heaven by 18 inches from your head to your heart. Yeah, that was it. Every Sunday, don't miss God. Don't miss God by 18 inches. Jesus never said that. Jesus never says that those who do not accept him into their heart will go to a hell where they will experience an eternal conscious torment. He does say in conclusion on the Sermon of the Mount that those who do not love their neighbors as themselves, even those on their doorstep, and especially those on their doorstep, we can't expect to hear this. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will get into the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. On the judgment day, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and expel demons in your name and do lots of miracles in your name? Then I'll tell them I've never known you. Get away from me, you people who do wrong. What judgment day is Jesus speaking of? Well, that depends on what scholar you ask. Which one? And we can't get into that today. There's just no time. Is there a hell? It depends on the scholar you ask. Certainly, our earliest Christian mother and fathers never believed in a literal place of torture and torment for unsaved people. They tended toward a more nihilistic view that there's some type of judgment for people who committed evil and then destruction, not this eternal conscious torment. For me... I used to believe in a literal hell, that place of eternal conscious torment for people that had never received Christ into their hearts as their personal Lord and Savior. It just rolls off the tongue, y'all. It's, it's deep. But I no longer believe that. I don't. For me, it just doesn't work. I, it doesn't comport with the Jesus that I have known and come to love. It just doesn't. I also believe because of brilliant scholar work, scholarship from people far smarter than me that a literal hell is not a thing. I want to believe that people who are evil are judged. I do. I want to believe that perpetrators of horror, degradation, abuse, and terror will suffer repercussions for the misery they caused others on earth. 
the scholarship can go either way on this one too. How does that judgment happen? Or if it does, I don't know. Depends on who you ask. I'm going to let you wrestle that one out for yourself. And still open to a small group to discuss it together. I've shared this story with you before that um, when I was a young teenager, around 14, 15 years old, we had a preacher preach on hell. Seems to me like it got preached a whole lot back in the day, back in rural Mississippi. But he talked about, in that sermon, he referred to something as a heavenly VCR. Anybody remember what a VCR is? You younger people don't know what I'm talking about, I know. So like a heavenly VCR, a heavenly DVD. Is there anything other than that now? Dan, what's past the DVD? Streaming, yeah. A heavenly streaming that you could go back and forth on, whatever. (laughs) And he said that on this heavenly VCR, when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and God in heaven, that we will stand there and he will roll back our lives in front of us. And all the bad things we ever did and all the bad things we ever thought will be displayed for the entire planet to see. Just full exposure. As a, I think I was 15 or 16 by the time because I was definitely dating by then. But I remember thinking, there are some things I've already done that I don't want anybody to see. It was a horrifying thought. It filled me with dread and shame. Now that I'm older, I get it. What point would that be? What does that accomplish? If God is not a God of shame and humiliation, why? Would the, I even Googled heavenly VCR yesterday trying to figure out who in the world taught this doctrine in a seminary somewhere because they need to be addressed. Somebody needs to go to this person and say, you need to fix that. But I couldn't find it anywhere. It's probably just his own imagination. God is not that God. God is not mad at you. God is not a God of shame, humiliation, and embarrassment. God is not mad at you. He never has been. God doesn't stand over you waiting to pounce on you with a club for every wrong you do. God accepts you. God delights in you. God treasures you. God traces your name on the palm of his hand. You make God happy. God loves you. God loves you.